If you're ready for freedom from the grind, then passive income from real estate investing is the best way to get you there. If you don't know where to start or what to do next, then the Rent Roll Radio Show is the best place to get you there. Join us while we discuss the best practices, strategies, and mindset you'll need and give you actionable content to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we are joined by Mike DeHaan from, is it Spokane, Washington? Is that where you live? Yep. Yep. I live in Spokane um, and, uh, you know, live in best flip wholesale, everything out here. So awesome. So Mike is a, a fellow GoBro of mine. So we're in GoBundance together and we met there. And then it turns out he lives in, in Spokane where where I, I used to, I used to live in Coeur d'Alene, which is and work in Spokane. So I would drive back and forth for a couple mm-hmm. of years between the two cities. And um and my my best friend still lives up there where um we visit frequently. So I uh, love the area and I was really interested to uh hear your take on that area because it's just mm-hmm. it's blown up in the last couple of years. And yeah um yeah so it, it's really- it's it's going crazy right now. Like um, I mean, well, I think Eastern Washington and Northern Idaho, like Kootenai County area were technically two of the three hottest markets in 2021. Yeah. Um, there was like a, there was all these articles coming out saying Coeur d'Alene was the hottest market. So it's so funny because mm-hmm. I, you're, I know we talked before we recorded and you're, you're into wholesale. So I'm, I'm, I've never like been direct to sell or anything. Like I've gotten all my deals from wholesalers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I did, like I signed up for, uh, uh, what was it? Um, prop stream uh, uh, last mm-hmm. year. And I was like, Oh, cool. You can send letters from there. Like maybe I'll try a direct to, you know, seller approach. And so I sent all these letters out where I live in Baton Rouge and then like I read that article about Coeur d'Alene. I was like, cool. So I sent a bunch of letters out to Coeur d'Alene and Spokane. They laughed me out of the state. I mean, they responded with like, ha ha. Um, I, I know what my property's worth. I don't know if you heard, but this is the hottest market in the country. Oh, like yeah. if you want to offer me 30,000 over what Zillow says, then we can talk. So it was like, whoa, never mind. I'll, I'll stick to my neighborhood. Yeah. Especially last year, it was like that because, you know, I mean, if you drive through the neighborhoods of Coeur d'Alene, like the neighborhoods aren't spectacular. Like it was a little sure. sort of like mining forestry town, like not that long ago. Right. And it's yeah. kind of had the resort there for a while with a little bit of local tourism, but not much outside of that. And, but people were wanting to move to that area for the politics, you know, they, the access to outdoor activities, you know, it's very close to Montana very close to the Selkirk mountains up there and in Canada, if you want to do hiking, skiing, you know, hunting, whatever, there's all sorts of stuff like that around there, but people were moving there in droves from, you know, California, Eastern Washington, uh, sorry, not, not Eastern Washington, Western Washington, like Seattle area, Texas. And we're paying absurd amounts of money for some of these houses. Mm-hmm. Like we, we even, we flipped one this past year. Um, so we bought it for 400,000. Um, as like basically our cash offer and we were able to put like 30 grand into it and we sold it for low fives, it's like 520, right? So we, we did pretty well, but this house kids, that was our cash offer was 400. This guy bought this house off the market in 2018 for $180,000. And our cash offer was $400,000. That was like our <laughs> low ball offer. 
<laughs> you know, and he was getting divorced and the house needed some work and all that sort of stuff. So he was stoked with it, but that's just the way the market's gone. You know, like our cash offers, people are making huge profits. So my best friend bought a house. He couldn't find any houses to buy like as a primary residence. And so he, he built a house. And from mm-hmm. the time he signed the papers to build the house to the time the house was done building, it had appreciated a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And then, you know, and that was, that was a year or two ago and now it's appreciated another hundred thousand dollars. So like he bought a house with like next to nothing down and now has over 200 grand in equity in it just from the market, just doing crazy shit. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I know you were seeing that everywhere. So even this house that I'm in right now, um, this is a new build. My wife and I moved in last year. Um, and we, we bought it. I guess we signed the papers in March of last year. By the time we closed on it in July, it was up about 12% um, from what we, what we paid for it. And now it's up about another 15 or so percent to now from then. So we basically have pretty significant equity in this house. And this isn't even, we're not even in Coeur d'Alene. We're in Spokane, which wasn't nearly as hot as Coeur d'Alene was. So it was just getting crazy over there. So what's, let's, let's back up. What's your story? You know, where'd you come from? How'd you get into real estate investing? And then like, how, what, what is it like in that market today? You know, for sure. So, um, I didn't start out a real estate guy. I went to college, you know, kind of did what most people do. You know, like I, I grew up out in Bozeman, Montana. And then, you know, for me, moving to the big city was moving to Spokane. Right. And I wanted to just get somewhere that had a little bit more going on. So went to Gonzaga, uh, university here in Spokane, got an engineering degree, um, went and got a job out in Seattle, working at Boeing as an uh, equipment engineer, working on the assembly line there. Did that for about five years. Um, I guess I did that for about four years and then moved, you know, wanted a career change, moved back to Spokane and got a job at the local utility here. And then at that period of time, I was like, I hate engineering. I don't want this to be my life. I didn't like the corporate sort of BS structure. So I just quit in 2018. And I was like, I'm going to go do anything but this. I don't know what it is. You know, I was fortunate to have a wife that was willing to, you know, allow me to give up 75% of our income just so I could <laughs> stop being such a, a miserable prick all the time. So, you know, I quit just in 2018. For the record, my wife yeah. always tells me she'd give up 75% of our income if I wasn't such a miserable prick all the time. <laughs> I, think, I think that, you know, most healthy relationships, that's a easily, you know, mutually agreeable thing. It's, it's funny. People always ask me what my wife thought about when I quit and she was the easy sell. Honestly, the a harder one with my parents um, sure. because they is. had, you know, I, I, I had like by all intents and purposes, I had a great career. I'd kind of like made it. I yeah. was like the, you know, they could be proud of their child. That's this yeah, engineer, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. in, in this field. And when I told them I was leaving, they're like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't really know. Like, I just need to figure something out. <laughs> so yeah. that, that was pretty what challenging. What do you mean you want to quit the job that we've been praying you would get for 35 years? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, it was, that, that was really hard, but you know, they were supportive, but it, it was definitely a difficult conversation. Um, so when I, anyways, I quit, you know, we traveled a little bit. I sort of worked to like, just find myself on. I wanted to do, I got into my head that I wanted to get into tech and be part of like tech startups and that sort of thing. So I locked myself basically in the basement of my house and taught myself how to be a web developer and code. It took me about, you know, three months of learning to code 10 hours a day. Um, and, uh, sort of figured that out and got some basic skills. 
started working for a tech startup. Um, that was pretty early phase. So I was getting paid a, you know, very minimal amount of money. Um, you know, it was one of those things it's like, they're not monetizing yet. They gave me some equity and very basic pay, um, to sort of help build this, this business. During that period of time, I was learning about business, reading about wealth, all that sort of stuff. And I was like, well, people keep talking about rental properties as like passive incomes. Like I need passive income so I can focus on being a startup guy. Right. So I was like, you know, I don't really have any income. It's gonna be hard to get properties. So I liquidated my corporate 401k, um, from Boeing and, you know, which was pretty sizable at that period of time. And, uh, I was like, I'm just going to use this to buy some properties, but they can't be any work. I don't want to do any work. I need to be able to focus on being a startup person. So I bought these two turnkey rental properties that were basically right on the corner from me. They were new build single families, um, that were really close to the house that I lived in. Bought those, um, you know, in hindsight, they were actually pretty poor cash flow investments because I didn't really understand how to analyze properties. <laughs> you know, I, I was like, my payment's going to be twelve hundred dollars. I'll be able to rent them for sixteen hundred. Like, I'm going to make eight hundred dollars a month between these two properties, right? That'll be sweet. <laughs> and of course, that's not how it works. Sure. But uh, sure. you know, it, it was still a good learning lesson in sort of how to be a landlord and how to manage rentals. Mm -hmm. um, so I got those, and then you know. I was making a little bit of money off those. So I started to get the bug, started going to meetups and all these sort of things. And I was like, you know, I want to have more passive income again, so I could be a, you know, folks on my startup. So I was like, well, what if I start flipping houses? So I started, you know, connecting with people, connecting with wholesalers, trying to find opportunities to flip houses. Um, and, uh, you know, how I would structure that is basically I would manage the project. I would manage the contractors. Um, and then somebody else would bring the money and we would just split things 50, 50. So I did that. That was 2019. At that point, I flipped a few houses, then started making some pocket money. Um, end of 2019, I kind of got sick of going to these closing statements and seeing the 40 to $50,000 assignment fees. I was paying wholesalers when I was making $25,000 on a flip. I paid so, $55,000 to the last wholesaler that got me a deal. Yeah. You know, and like they, they make their money, right? Like that is it. But I, I could have approached it from the point of I'm sick of paying them. So I want to become them. And that's what I did. Right. So early 2020, um, you know, we just started getting it. I approached my now business partner and was like, Hey, we should do this. They wanted to buy properties too. Um, so we started marketing and our, our goal wasn't initially to wholesale. It was basically just to buy super discounted rentals so we could, you know, be the burn method, all that sort of sure, stuff. Sure. But as we started to get traction with our marketing and learn sales and start to close deals, we quickly reached a position where, you know, we had more opportunity than we had capital. Um, and then also too, I mean, not going to lie, it is slightly intoxicating when you go from making a hundred thousand dollars a year to all of a sudden you have these deals where you're like, I could flip this paper and make $40,000 like right now. You know, and so we, we started to, to pursue that route and then, you know, built it up over 2020, 2021, we started hiring out a team and now fast forward to now we've grown kind of exponentially since then I have um, 17 employees and we're wholesaling and flipping in nine different markets around the country. Um, almost, you know, obviously most, what's that? Any of them close to me? Not down there, actually. Um, we, we can chat about that, though, because I think that we could probably find some stuff down there. Um, but uh, yeah, and, you know, we're kind of just a, mostly a wholesale shop, but we also do a lot of flips and rentals when the opportunity makes sense. And then I've built a pretty sizable rental portfolio in that time as well. So, awesome. yeah. Oh, great story. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love hearing it. Uh, no matter how many times I do, I love, I love hearing people escape the, uh, the corporate grind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, the, uh, the, I, I just uh, like, I'm so addicted to the concept that there's so much more to life than like working to pay bills until you're mm-hmm. 70. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? Um, well, cool. So tell me a little bit about like a, your, your kind of your local market, because it's very different than mine, but I'm familiar with mm-hmm. it. I'm interested in it. And I've, I've got friends that were very interested in it. And then also I, I want your opinion from a wholesaler's perspective on like what the current economic conditions, like what you're seeing change in the market. I would imagine rising interest rates, crashing mm-hmm. economy equals more opportunities for a wholesaler, right? More stuff's coming on, on, on board. Yeah. So I guess to touch on that really quick before I go into like our market um, in terms of acquiring contracts, We've definitely found that to be the case. There was kind of a period of time, mostly in like May, when they first increased the interest rates and every form of mainstream media was like doom and gloom, doom and gloom, whatever, that sellers were kind of skittish and not wanting to move forward on anything. That's since passed. And we're getting a lot of people come out of the woodwork that we talked to like a long time ago. They're now wanting to sell. Um, And then a lot of sellers are like, seeing the equity that they've been fortunate enough to build over the last little bit suddenly start to trickle away. So they're starting to get a little bit of FOMO, right? They want to be like their neighbor or their friend that sold their house for way too much money, you know, six months ago. Um, You know, and if they have like beat down properties, they're having to accept discounts now. So we're seeing a lot of contracts come around. The disposition on wholesale stuff has been more tricky for sure because the buyer pool is much smaller. Um, particularly like amateur flippers, we found have pretty much exited the market. Um, like the, like professional flippers, people that have flipping businesses, um, that have crews and all that sort of stuff, they're still buying, they just want better deals. So that's fine. Um, so, you know, basically means on our end, taking smaller fees, um, you know, us being more prepared to close on things ourselves, which we've always kind of approached our business with that intention anyway. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like it, it's just different, right? It, and if there's a deal that seems like it's kind of dicey and, you know, last year we kind of probably could have been like, well, we'll probably be able to find someone because everyone wants to be in real estate. Yeah. Those last deals now were at murder. It, it was last, as, last year as, for sure. Yeah. As a, as a, like a, as a very broad statement about, every condition of real estate in the market and in pretty much every position, we just got so spoiled. We oh, just yeah. got so spoiled that and like disconnected from reality that like, mm-hmm. as we come and approach reality, we've got this like, Holy shit, the sky is falling. Like, no, it's not. We're just like getting back to like a normal type of environment. It was just so crazy. Like rock bottom interest rates, like shit just goes up 10% every year. Like we were just so spoiled for so long that like now we're like, you know what I'm saying? Like not even hopping at reality, but I mean, there's still great opportunities. We're still in a great market. We're still, you know what I mean? Yeah. I know, especially out here, man, it it was so crazy every single month. There was people that were able to um, assign deals to other, you know, the investors that were kind of ignorant they would advertise their deal with like an appreciation ARV. So they would like, you know, so let's say like, like at this moment, the house is worth 300,000. 
they would be like, they would have a, be trying to sell it at like 270,000. So, you know, basically no meat on the bone. And they would say, so right now the house is only worth 300. But if you look at the appreciation ARV, by the time you sell it, it's going to be worth 350. So, you know, (laughs) it, it actually is a good deal. And people were buying them. You know, it was unbelievable, but you saw it all the time around here. That's crazy. I never saw that around here. Yeah, dude. Like, yeah, especially uh, in Coeur d'Alene or like out in Seattle where stuff was And they were probably right. (laughs) Yeah, they probably were. Yeah. I mean, so uh, talking to some of my friends here that um, have like hard money companies, several of them were having issues because, you know, they they typically project when, you know, the money's going to be coming back to them so they can like line up more loans, all that sort of stuff. They were having issues where they were having people um, basically go past their balloons on their um, hard money loans and just paying basically like the penalty interest at like 24% or whatever it was because the market was going up so fast their net was going to be significantly higher if they just like waited two months yeah. and paid the 24% interest as opposed <laughs> to paying off their loan when they were supposed to, yeah. you know, How do you just, that? <laughs> yeah, you can't, right. It's just, it's just crazy. Um, so, you know, in, in, in our market, because like Spokane and Coeur d'Alene were super hot and then just stones throw away from here too is Boise. Um, Boise is a short drive as well. And that wasn't still is an insanely hot market. Right. So this the whole area exploded. Um, and you know, as a result over the past couple of years, doing direct to sell or anything was very challenging because it's funny. We, we, we have me and my business part, we kind of have theories. So Idaho is always challenging mostly because people, they're very sort of like tribal there. Like they, if you're not part of like their sphere, they kind of have low trust in you. And a lot of them will put incredible value on things because it's like part of their identity, like, like, like whether it's land or just like acreage or things like that, or like little, like, like Creek access sort of like rural stuff that for the people that are buying these places at the end, don't really care about, like, they don't really care if you have a little Creek in your backyard. Sure. It can be good, but it's not going to add $50,000 worth of value to the property. Like the person thinks. Sure. Right. So that's one thing in Idaho, um, that we find people tend to really overvalue their properties because of sort of like natural features and stuff like that with Washington, Spokane, especially is a very weird place because we Spokane was booming in like the forties through like the seventies, because there was a lot of like mining and stuff out here. There was a lot of logging coming through here was an industry town in the seventies. Like all that died. And basically from like the mid seventies through like 2000 and 10. I mean, you lived here, you kind of saw it. Mm-hmm. It was on like a pretty steep decline. Sure. Um, you know, a, a lot of drug issues, a lot of like weird stuff going on. Yeah. Um, and because of that, there's a ton of dilapidated neighborhoods and there's almost no houses that were built between like the mid seventies through like 2005. So everything's either like old or it's like brand new. Yeah. Um, and so what we typically find though, with all these people is there will be these situations where you'll have someone that has like drug problems, financial problems, whatever, who's like a local here who lives in like the most dilapidated house has like no teeth is just like an absolute (laughs) character, but they will know the value of their property down to the square footage down to (laughs) the, like, like how much, if it's an acreage, they will know what the exact price per, you know, acre or everything is for their house. They will know the cost to replace a roof. They will have done their homework, but this is someone who can't even like figure out how to pay their electric bill. 
right? Yeah. But they will be very, very educated <laughs> on certain things. And like we have this theory, it's like, is it just because Washington has a generally a pretty good education system? So like, even <laughs> though they're, they're kind of like trashy people, they're kind of trashy sellers, they're like, they're educated, right? Like they know how to do homework on something that they care about. And it, it, it's super fascinating. And somewhere that makes our market, I think, extremely difficult because, you know, like I talked to my friends, for example, who do stuff like in Texas and they just get deals left and right. It's a huge population education levels can be kind of all over the place, whatever. And I tell them some of the stories that we have of debates. We have some of these sellers versus what they have. Like they'll like just walk into a house that's worth 200,000 say, I'll give you 120. And the person's like, okay, that sounds good. Like that's never once happened here yeah. in the hundred plus transactions we've done in two years. It's always, you know, you're having to overcome their objections because of their, their knowledge or their stubbornness or whatever, or they have some sort of insane baggage that's come with like a family issue or like something they've done that's illegal or like a big lien on the property or something like that. Um, and we've learned over the last couple of years networking that that's not common for everyone. <laughs> that seems to be a unique thing here. <laughs> you know, I don't know why. So, yeah. but uh... yeah. So again, I, I don't run into nearly as many crazies as, as you do, I would imagine. Um, I, I end up with, you know, I end up with them, but I, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm sure you get thrown out of 10 crazy houses, whereas to every one that I actually end up buying, right. As a wholesaler mm-hmm. versus the, the end guy. But I end up with some crazy ass houses with some crazy ass people. I mean, we oh, got I hoarders, we got, mm-hmm. I got right now I've got, this is funny. I've got like bug bites all over half of my stomach from a house that oh, I walked no. through yesterday. Like, like fleas I walked or in, some, I've, dude, I've gotten fleas at at least five different houses. Oh, I mean, they're gone by the time you get home. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, not, it's not like bed bugs. You're not like bringing them home, but like I've, I've like, they're just the sickest environments in these houses. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people are always like, well, how can they live like that? I'm like, well, dude, by the time we buy these houses, like they're, like, it's not like it's, it's a distressed situation. Like somebody's on drugs, somebody's crazy. Some, you know what I mean? Like they can't pay their mortgage. They can't figure out how to pay the electric company. Like, like they're not going to make their fucking bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I know. Yeah. It, it, it's, yeah, it's always, yeah. We, we have lots of stuff like that. And then, well, one of the weird things too here is, is Washington's a blue state, right? So there's a lot of, you know, state supported, whatever. So people can drag things on for a long time, getting carried by the the local and the state government. Um, And not only that, but like, people can get a lot of things forgiven that are generally unacceptable. A lot of how does that how does that make for being a landlord who owns property in Washington? Yeah, and it's so Washington as a state as a whole is obviously very tenant friendly. um, But like, a lot of the landlord laws are still sort of uh, dictated by the local jurisdiction. So, you know, Spokane is a little bit more conservative. So we kind of have a good happy medium most of the time. I mean, there's still some BS, right? Like if we need to evict somebody, there's like a huge process and we have to go like a mediation and we have to do all this stuff. And then like, if they're able to get help, like they're able to get support, we're legally not allowed to not accept it. Um, so, I mean, like they, they sort of frame it as like, they're doing landlords a favor cause they can guarantee we get paid. But if it's like a tenant that's trashing the property or it's like a multifamily, they're making it hell for the other tenants. Um, 
you know, it still forces you to keep up with them. But I mean, it's not terrible. You just have to be by the books. Like you can't, you know, like try to do stuff that's kind of under the table. Um, you'll, you'll get bit pretty big, but like, so versus like Seattle, Seattle's a freaking nightmare. Um, you know, cause it's like the local government there is insane. And there, there's actually a policy over in Seattle that I think it's still active unless they changed over this last little bit. But, um, I remember hearing about a while back where if you had a property that was empty, I think it was for more than two months, the city was allowed to take someone that was basically on like this housing system and just place them in your property. And they're like, but we'll, they like, we'll pay you 80% of market rent. Um, but you basically <laughs> allowed to do this, but like you could have like a high rise luxury apartment that takes a while to fill just cause it's expensive and they just put a crackhead in there, you know? <laughs> And then you can't do anything about it. It's Welcome crazy. To America. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, but we're, we're, we're not, we're not that bad. And I mean, honestly too here, because like the cost of living is relatively high. Gen- average income isn't incredibly high. Um, we utilize cash for keys a lot because yeah. money talks, you know, when I, like, even right now I have a, a tenant that I've been dealing with um, really since COVID started um, we're like her lease was due to, to be up when COVID started and I wasn't allowed to end it. And then she's been able to get support for like the last two and a half years and her support finally expired. And, uh, I filed an eviction notice and we're going to do this mediation and all that sort of BS. So I finally went to her and I was like, listen, I'll pay you two, two grand if you just like leave right now. She's like, cool, done. And she's moving out actually tomorrow. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> it, but, it, yeah, it makes, it makes you sick to your stomach every time you have to write that check. I know it's not the best, but you know, like the, the plus side is because of how large our deals are here, you know, average price point is about 450,000 in Spokane. Um, mm-hmm. I think quarter lane's a little bit higher than that. And we get things at relatively large discounts. Most of the time it's easy to just work into your budget and sure, not be a sure. big deal, but there's always big issues with it as well. I mean, we just had to go through a full eviction with someone not too long ago that dragged on for six months and was an absolute nightmare, yeah. but yeah, that's all right. So, well, cool. So, I want to hop over to our. Uh, before I do that, what was something you would do different if you had to start over again today? Like from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I would have started marketing earlier, especially because, like, I mean, in hindsight, hindsight's twenty twenty. If I'd started doing off market stuff in two thousand eighteen, two thousand nineteen, around here. I'd be freaking loaded right now, man. (laughs) But like, like, you know, if you look at systematized stuff um, and like realistic things I could have done different, I would have started buying distressed properties earlier um, and not jumped into properties that were like safer and easier because you get so much more return on your cash and you get so much more equity buildup from that versus like the initial stuff I bought. I have money. Every single person that comes through the, the, the meetup and, or, or like reach out to me from the podcast, you know, they're like, Oh, this is great. I want to do it. And do you mind? Like if I send you deals and we go, oh, I'm happy to review them all. And inevitably every single time they send me 40 from the MLS, I'm like, mm-hmm. you don't get it. If you're buying yeah. it, like you have to buy it for less than it's worth. That's the deal. That's the hook. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's how you make money. You got to yeah. buy it to stress. You got to buy it off market for less than, you know, um, but no, I hear you. What, how do you market? What's your preferred, or is that something you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm an open book, man. 
in because like like i mean the stuff that we do isn't insane rocket science um you know we just have a little bit more of a of a system and a track record and a you know management method than most people do that's how we're able to be successful so um direct mail is our main staple um you know across all the markets that we do stuff in we're very very heavy direct mail you know so you just send them a postcard so that that's kind of where we're a little bit better right is you know, we don't just go and send like boilerplate postcards you can get from any mail house. So you just like go and submit the list and you select the postcard and you send it. We do branded stuff pretty heavily. So like revolving around our business brand. So that way when well, we, we do that mixed with like letters that kind of get like a personal touch where we're like a message to them, that something like sort of relevant to the area and relevant maybe to them as like a neighborhood if we're targeting something more specific. We do letters basically combined with these branded postcards. So like they get a letter from us, has like our copy, you know, signed by me with our, our business name for that local area. And they, you know, take it and they toss it out, whatever. Then like the next month or a couple weeks later, they get a postcard from us that's from the same business, but it has our brand. It has our photos on it. It has like things that make us look like people. Okay probably see that and they'll be like, Oh, I remember these guys sent me the letter last week, whatever. So throw away third month they get another letter or another postcard, depending on where they're at in the sequence. And, um, you know, they're like, okay, now I recognize this brand. I recognize these people. And, you know, it's just like marketing with everything else, right? Someone has to be exposed to you enough times before they're going to be comfortable reaching out to you for an inquiry. So, you know, we, we, do all of our marketing on this basis of like, we're trying to build trust and we're not like necessarily like fishing, but we're actually building a brand around how we're having these conversations with people. And as a result, like most of our deals, we don't really have any competition from like other wholesalers. Like we do on, on some of them, but a lot of them, I, I would say more than 50% people call us up and they're like, Hey, I've been getting these letters. Like I get 15 of these a month. Um, I've never called one before but I know that you've sent me 10 of these over the last year. Um, you know, what's your guys' deal? And then it opens up a relationship and we can start to have that conversation. So, you know, there is a lot of legwork to get that built up and there's a lot of time to sort of build that brand. And then, you know, on top of it, we have an online presence. So we have like a, a custom website, has our photos on it. It has success stories, you know, it has testimonials, um, you know, and then when people visit our website, they get retargeted with like Facebook ads and Google ads and like all the same stuff. Right. You know, it's, it's, we approach it like a business, like, you know, we're trying to sure. sell someone and have that brand recognition. Um, and the direct mail is kind of what just gets us on the map for people. So do you mind if I ask what your deal flow looks like? Like how many deals y'all are doing a month? Yeah. So, um, it, it varies, obviously these last couple months have been not as good as we were. Um, going into the springtime this past year, we were really turning up. Um, we were getting, I guess, 12 to 18 deals a month on average. Oh, sure. Um, so we were, we were doing pretty well. Um, so I think, yeah, April was our largest. We did 18. Um, and then, you know, March, what were we like 12 then going up basically from like mid February through is it seasonal like middle of May to be seasonal just yeah. regular year cadence? Yeah, it's, it's super seasonal, um, especially around, around here. So, um, you know, and, and I, I'll say those numbers to you are in, in the various markets that we're in combined. So like, if you look at numbers per market, it's usually three to five per market that we're in, um, cool. just sort of varies. So, um, the, uh, the up here though, in Spokane spring and fall are super hot. 
um, summer it's, it's winter, it's cold. A lot of people don't want to move and then summer it's lake season. So everyone's, you know, everyone goes to lake here. Like you can go to like the most D class neighborhood here and like th- <laughs> a third of the houses will have super nice boats. It's just how it goes. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. So, you know, we, we do some good volume though. And our, our typical lead flow, we get 200 to 300 ish leads a month on average. Um, to get, you know, you know, 10 to 18 deals, not sort of range. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, cool. So I want to hop over to our radio round now to just ask a couple of questions to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. So the first one is what's your favorite book? Favorite book. So, um, four hour work week is something that, yeah, it was, it was the first book like that was sort of like that, that I read that was a, you know, business or a lifestyle related book. And honestly, it was kind of the one, like, that was like my red pill, you know, like from the matrix. Um, I, I I read that and I was super miserable in my um, engineering career. And, uh, I was like, I'm doing everything wrong. Like I need to (laughs) not do this. And actually I think I read that book and I quit my job four months later. Um, and that had an extremely direct impact. So probably up there. What, uh, what is your favorite quote? Favorite quote. Um, so something that I repeat a lot is you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. And I'm a really big believer in that. And that's also why I'm a big, that too. Is that would you say that's Jim Rohn or, or is that good? It's, it's funny. I'm actually not sure who the original quote is. You know, I guess if I was, you know, I could post it on my Instagram and attribute it to like Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln or something. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I'm not sure the original was. No, it's so true though. Um, Yeah. And and I, 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 I'm a big believer in that. Not only just in terms of, uh, like personal networking. Yeah. That's, that's big reason I joined GoBundance, but it's funny reflecting on that too. I think a lot of people, they struggle with that concept because they're like, I'm not really around people that are like go-getters. I live in a small town. Like I don't really know how to find those people. I honestly kind of first started to experience that through the media I consumed. Um, so, you know, when I would spend so much of my time alone with my thoughts, like working at Boeing or, you know, I like at the gym or whatever, I would spend my time consuming, you know, material from people that I wanted to be like, Sure, and, and that, it starts to elevate you. Yeah. That's, that's super underrated and, 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 and probably more true with me than, than the other. Right. So, yeah. you know, my, my friends are still who my friends have always been, but, but what mm-hmm. I do control is like the inputs, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just, I'm, I'm obsessed with this concept, which all of pretty much the fundamentals of self-improvement from every different ideology were built around. And it's basically like, you know, you're a computer and you're, you, you, your output is going to be a sum of your inputs. So like, what kind mm-hmm. of music are you listening to? What kind of books are you reading? What kind of shows are you watching? And that's going to make you who you are and what kind of people are you hanging around? Right. Yeah. Um, but, but more the, like you said, the media you're consuming, the, that that's when I saw my life transform. When I, when I started being very intentional about the podcast I was listening to the books I was reading mm-hmm. and like the media I was consuming, you know, versus watching the news and all that crap, you know what I mean? Being mm-hmm. very intentional about the inputs and it's, it's just had a huge transformation on the output. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was much the same. And it can be a challenging thing too. Cause I think a lot of people, 
you know, they don't give that stuff enough time, but it's just like everything else where you're learning, you know, it takes a little bit for that adaptation in your brain and stuff to start taking place. You know, it's not like you can go and read like a business book and be like, well, I'm not successful yet. Or like, you know, you start listening to one business podcast once a week and you're like, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm getting anything. You kind of have to fully envelop yourself in it. You know, it's like, if you want to learn Spanish, do you go and hire a Spanish teacher for one you know, is it more better to hire a Spanish teacher for one hour a week or to go live in Mexico? I guarantee you're going to learn more living in Mexico. Yes. So many people it's, they have these like big emotional, like they rely on And uh, I think Jacko Willick talks about like, you don't need motivation. You need discipline, right? You like, Mm -hmm. everybody gets inspired. Everybody gets motivated for this like big burst of energy. Like I'm going to go read this book. I'm going to go to this seminar. You know what I mean? Yeah, we're going to do it. And then like it weans like over a week, you know what I mean? Like they lose interest and get distracted and go do some other shit. Like the the main differentiator of like what makes the people successful is like, they just do it every single day. They just Mm -hmm. keep coming back every single day and, and like, just keep, you know, like, like I exercise every single day. Like I don't want to most days, you know, mm-hmm. like my wife always say, I just wish I just woke up wanting to exercise. Like, yeah, I don't wake up wanting to exercise. I just do it anyway. you know I mean? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. It's like everything else It's doing the boring things over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, you know, as much as you don't want to, but it, sure. it is, it is hard. How can our listeners get in touch with you or find out more about you? Yeah. So I have my own podcast. Um, it's called the collecting keys podcast and it's a, you know, it's an investment focused podcast specifically about, um, you know, kind of how we run our business and being a direct to seller focused business. So if that's something that interests you at all. You should definitely go and check us out there. You know, we get all into the weeds about like some of the crazy deals that we get into, you know, how we run our marketing, how we manage our sales teams, all that sort of stuff. And then we're also starting to bring on some pretty solid guests. I think we're actually having you come on um, next week. So, um, you know, check us out there at the Collecting Keys podcast. And uh, besides that on Instagram, I'm at Mike underscore invests. Um, I'm always very active with people that engage with me on there. So if you go and shoot me a DM, I'm always happy to chat with people about whatever you have going on. So. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Mike. I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, I really, yeah. really liked learning about your systems and your wholesaling and I'm definitely going to be in touch. I'm going to, as soon as we hop off the recording, I'm actually going to um, connect you with my best friend in, in Coraline because I'd, I'd love for you to start sending him deals and I'm going to um, pick your brain a little bit more about the other markets you're in. So if yeah. you don't come to my market, I might come to some of yours. Um, Perfect. So, I like uh, it. Really great meeting you. And I look forward to being on your show next week. Awesome. Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate it. This episode was brought to you by Crestworth Capital. If you're a busy professional and ready to make passive income from real estate investing, then go to CrestworthCapital.com where you'll be able to download a free copy of our ebook to help you get started today. Until next week, happy investing.